Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Father, we thank you for your message of hope, for your gospel, your good news. And we thank you for the clarity with which you've revealed your son and eternal word, not only to us, but to, to all peoples. We pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us now, O Father, so that we could hear truly and deeply, and that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would always be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Good evening and welcome. It's a wonderful night. I love the epiphany. Now, you need to know... Full disclosure, I'm giving you the facts right now. The facts are Epiphany is January 6th. And what is today? Not January 6th. It is January 12th. So we're a little late, but that's okay. Because we know that the, the three wise men, the Magi, that they were late getting there. That Jesus, what, it wasn't the night he was born. It was a little bit after his birth. So we're a little behind, but we wanted to be sure to celebrate and mark this day. Normally, the first Sunday after Epiphany is what we would, this would normally be. We would normally have baptism. So tonight, we're celebrating the Epiphany, and we're baptizing. It's a great night. Can you smell the incense? None of you are having an asthma attack. These are not the droids you're looking for, etc. Everyone's okay. It's a wonderful night. And tonight, I want to talk to you about there's some kings here. We've got a baby king, sweet little baby Jesus king. We've got a terrible but great King Herod. We've got these three kings from the east, probably from modern-day Persia, Iran. But what we have at stake here is worship. What we have at stake tonight in this story is worship. Now, we had a lot of readings, and I, you probably heard in all the readings that there were a lot of pictures of people from countries you've never heard of. Tarshish and Nabaoth, the rams of Nabaoth, not to, just not anything but the rams. You've got Sheba and Saba and Arabia. You have all these nations that are mentioned in Psalm 72. 
in Isaiah 60 in that beautiful eschatological picture. And then you have St. Paul talking about not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. So all of those nations are Gentile nations, meaning they're not Jewish nations. And for a good Jew, before Christ would have come, to read something like Isaiah 60 or Psalm 72, which is a messianic psalm, it was written for Solomon, a son of David, but we know it was also a prophecy for the son of David, Jesus. When we read all of that, we see hindsight as 2020, second week in a row, I've said that now. We see, yeah, that makes sense that all these nations would come to worship before God. And the fact that they're coming to worship before God, did you notice what the prophet Isaiah said? That it's a beautiful and a pleasing sacrifice before God. And not only that, but it beautifies the house of God. So there's this beautification happening as all nations come to worship the one true king. And the epiphany is the feast where we celebrate and remember God's manifestation of his son to the nations. That's why Ephesians 3 is read as Paul celebrates the mystery that he's been given, that he knows that the gospel's not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, for all nations. And Paul even notes that this mystery is that these people are now one new man or person and they have boldness and they have access and that they can now worship. There's a word that you, I know you've heard and the word is orthodox or orthodoxy. And what, then just think for a minute, what pops into your head when you hear the word orthodox or orthodoxy? It may be flattering It may not be flattering, but if we strictly look at the Greek roots of the word, orthodoxy means right, ortho, glory, doxa, like doxology. We sing the doxology, praise God from whom. So right glory, or another way to say that would be right worship. Now it's become a moniker for a right way to believe, and in some cases can be used in a very pejorative manner. Orthodox or unorthodox. That's not, that's very unorthodox. That's very wrong, if you will. But just take all those images that you have of that word orthodox and just kind of gently uh, move them to the side in your mind palace. And when you think about the word orthodoxy tonight, I want you to think of right worship. Now, it's not right worship because all the T's are crossed as well as the lowercase j's. But it's right worship because of the object of worship. How do you know that, Jay? That's a big, bold, brash statement that you say with such confidence and yet humor. Just trying to be sarcastic about myself. We know that because of tonight's gospel lesson. So let's look at true worship through the eyes of Matthew, the apostle, as he tells us about these three wise men that have come to visit this new king. And the first thing I want you to know about orthodoxy or, remember, right worship or true worship, let's use it like that, true worship complements the truth. Now, it doesn't mean 
it, it fulfills it in a sense. It doesn't mean that without true worship, the truth is still not the truth. But true worship is a, is a fulfilling of truth. Notice in verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Who? Jesus. Remember in Matthew 1? It's the Jesus origin story. It's just like the Moses origin story. The Genesis of Moses or the Genesis of Jesus. And what do we learn about Jesus in his Genesis? He's the son of Joseph. That's very important because he's the son of whom? The son of David. The great king. The holy king. The king who was a warrior but also like a priest and a prophet and a musician and all these things. So Jesus was the son of David and the line of David, but he was also, we learn in Matthew 1, one who would take away his people's sins. So this son of David is the son of Joseph, but he's also the son of God who will rescue his people from their sins. True worship, remember, complements complements the truth. We see Jesus here as the divine son of God. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, it's important to remember Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to, what have they come to do? To gather information about this person. We have come to worship him. They want to encounter this king of the Jews. What do these guys from probably Persia have to do with the king of the Jews? Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. The coastlands will put their hope in you. The isles will come to you and worship you. They saw a star. And they followed the star. Creation revealed to them that this king was born. And so the beginning of their worship journey testifies that Jesus is more than just a Caesar-like being or even a Herod-like being, but he is something else, something other, something holy, as we sing earlier. Now, just as true worship complements the truth or fulfills the truth, false worship contradicts the truth. Now, there's another king in this story. I told you to take note of him, and his name is Herod the Great. Who is Herod? I, I wanted to freshen up on my Herod, uh, Herodology. Herod was capable was cunning. If Abe Froman was the sausage king of Chicago, then Herod was the development king of Israel in Second Temple Judaism. Herod was a master at building. He built a whole city on the coast, a port city, named it after Caesar. He was also cunning. Did I mention that? He was really, he was really wily. He knew how to work the angles. He built this huge temple. Solomon's temple was big, but it was destroyed. People had sinned. Judah, Jerusalem, the temple destroyed. People in exile. Herod rebuilds the temple, and the temple is ginormous. It's truly an awe-inspiring edifice. 
Herod knows how to build. He knows how to rule this precarious place called Palestine right before Christ is born. So he rules for about 37, 36 years, and he's appointed as king of the Jews. Did you get that title? Now, what did the wise men call Jesus, the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose. We've come to worship him, who was born the king of the Jews. But wait a minute. Rome is the biggest power on earth. Rome's got it going on. And Rome told Herod that he's what? The king of the Jews. True worship fulfills, complements the truth, but false worship contradicts the truth. You see, Herod had his own narrative or his own arc for his life. And you're going to see that it's not the true worship arc. It's not the orthodoxy arc. Again, when you hear that word orthodoxy, you're thinking of beauty, God's presence, right worship. Herod does not understand the truth. We see the Holy Scriptures as the norming norm. They give us boundaries. They tell us what it looks like to be fully human. Jesus gives us the, pic- the perfect picture. It's so important that Jesus is fully God. It is equally important that Jesus is fully human because he can give himself as a ransom for all. God, man, together as a ransom St. John says, if any, you need to test the spirits. And he says, if any spirit does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh, that Jesus was human, then that's the spirit of the Antichrist. It is so important that Jesus was fully human. And God, in his grace and in his mercy, reveals to us what it looks like to be fully human in Jesus. But Herod, the great the king of the Jews, has his own ark of worship. He knows the scriptures, but for him, they are not the norming norm. And why do I say this? Well, look at your bulletin there. Verse three, when Herod the king heard this, that these guys had come to worship Jesus when they saw a star when it rose in the east, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So if you get the leader upset, you get get the top of the system getting a little anxious, getting a little little vibration going on, then the rest of the system is going to freak out. All Jerusalem is troubled with Herod. Verse 4, And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So Herod knew that something was happening. He knew about the Messiah, the Christ. And he inquired of them where he was to be born. Verse 5, They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod has the truth, but he is not participating in true worship. True worship complements, it fulfills the truth, but false worship contradicts the truth. So Herod takes part of the truth that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem, of Judea, and what does he do? He uses it for his own personal gain, for what I would say his own self-worship. And pause to take note, Jay and friends. The main 
enemy of true worship. The never going away antithesis of orthodoxy is self-worship, autodoxy, self-worship. Self-worship does not fulfill or complement the truth. Self-worship takes a little thing and capital and twists it and capitalizes it on it for one's own personal gain. Which brings us to our second point. True worship costs. True worship costs us something. And this cuts both ways, just like the truth part does. But notice the wise men. They had heard from Herod. Herod wants to know, oh, when you find this great king, tell me. Because I would like to worship him as well. An angel warns them in a dream that that was not the case. But notice what happens when the wise men arrive to the child Jesus and Joseph and Mary. Look at verse 11 and 12. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. They didn't trip and fall. But they knew they were in the presence of someone holy. And just like our three kings tonight in the procession brought gifts, these are the traditional gifts, and we, we see it here, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gold for the king, frankincense for the holy one, myrrh, this bitter perfume for one who would die. They fell down and worshiped. They opened their treasures and they offered him gifts. Trust me, these gifts cost these men something. Moreover, this journey cost them something. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod cost them something. Herod is not the kind of fellow you want to get on the wrong side of. True worship costs something. We think of David, and he's just taken the census, even though God said, don't take a census, but he did. And a pestilence breaks out against Israel. And David supplicates, he prays to God. God stays his hand, and God appears to David and says, you need to build an altar to remember what has happened. And this altar will, will be a place to worship me. And this altar will one day be the place where David's son Solomon will build a house for God, this same temple. And do you remember what happened? A man, Ornon, it's on his threshing floor. And David comes to him and says, I need, your, I need this place. I have to build an altar for worship to God. And the man says, hey, you're, the, you're my king. Take it. And David says, no, I will not offer to my God a sacrifice that costs me nothing. True worship costs. And that cost leads to life. Think about Jesus for a moment, if you will. <coughs> Ponder the cross, the ultimate act of worship complete obedience to his father 
for the life of the world. Complete submission to the kingdom that he is the king of, the kingdom that he would bring, but his enthronement was through this cruel Roman instrument of death. The same Rome that made Herod king of the Jews is the same Rome that crucified Jesus. But that true worship, which cost Jesus everything, leads to life. It is only through death that we move to resurrection. The same goes for these three wise men. But false worship also has a toll to be paid. But its cost does not lead to life. This is not in your bulletin. But just to give you an idea of Herod's arc, of his own self-worship, of his paranoid and anxious need to be the only king of the Jews, we read in verse 16, Herod's action that he took. Then Herod, saw, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Herod's need for self-worship was so great and so costly that he surmised the time when the Christ child would have been born and he sent his minions to Bethlehem and all that region in Judea and killed every male child two years old or under. We honor those holy martyrs on December 28th every year in the Feast of the Holy Innocents. But do you see the power of self-worship? Do you see the cost of self-worship when taken to its logical end? My question that I ask myself as someone who is prone to self-worship. And the question I have for you tonight is this. Whose kingdom are we submitted to? If the kingdom of Christ is the kingdom of true worship, of orthodoxy, that complements the truth, that costs something, but leads to life, And it's not just any life, it's life from above. It's life that we can't buy. It's life that we can't manufacture. It's life that any amount of technology will never be able to conjure up. It is Zoe life, life from above. Is that the kingdom that you and I are submitted to? Is that the kingdom that St. Bart's is here to, to announce and proclaim and to baptize into? Or is it the kingdom of Herod and of self-worship 
where we do things in our own self-interest, where we take a little bit of the truth, but we twist it just enough so it looks like we're spiritual, where we willingly embrace the cost of false worship and either ignorantly or willingly let it lead not to life, not to life that is from above, but to death. It's a very simple question for you and for me. And at the end of the day, we ask ourselves, will we come and kneel to the child in the manger? Or, and will we let him have the throne of our hearts? Or, will we maintain control of that? Will we keep him at arm's length? Will we have just enough word and sacrament to where we're still ultimately in charge. Orthodoxy. Orthodoxy puts Christ first, beholds the beauty of his kingdom, and welcomes the cost of that worship and welcomes that life from above. Tonight, as we baptize Simone and Ezra, we are welcoming them not into the kingdom of Herod, or the kingdom of self. In fact, baptism is an exact renunciation of the kingdom of self. But we're welcoming welcoming them by God's grace into the kingdom of those holy innocents, of the prophets, the white-robed army of martyrs, the kingdom that Christ came to inaugurate, the kingdom that that star that rose in the east that guided the wise men to Bethlehem, that kingdom that is revealed to all nations, we are welcoming them through Christ's death and resurrection and their participation in the same into that kingdom. Now when we do this, you're renewing your worship, your orthodoxy in that kingdom. So when you participate tonight, supporting the Detzels, but also renewing your own baptism, don't do it lightheartedly. Don't just babble the words, but let life from above spur you on as we baptize these dear ones. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for your kingdom that you have made us to be part of in your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the sacrament of baptism that in it we will see these buried and dead and raised again. And we thank you for water, Lord, both this element of life, but also a boundary marker and something that can cause death. Lord, we pray that you would bring death to the old person in Simone and Ezra and bring resurrection to the new creation in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.